inspiration, breathe on me, breath of God, in our hymnals number together. Uh, if you'll turn with me to Luke, Gospel of Luke chapter 22, we'll read verses 54 through 62, very familiar passage of scripture about the apostle Peter and his tragic denial of Jesus right before his crucifixion. Before we read God's word together, let's pray. Father God, you have inspired these words to be written by your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you have breathed them out so that they are useful to us for correction, for reproof, for instruction, for training in righteousness, so that we might be competent and equipped and complete for every good work. Would you write its words on our hearts, Lord, so that we might not sin against you? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Beginning in verse 54, this is where Luke writes, Then they seized him, meaning Jesus, and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. When they kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, This man also was with him. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. But Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. 
And the Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This is God's word. Please be seated. The late Rich Mullins is one of my favorite singer-songwriters. He wrote several songs, a lot actually, that really cut to the heart, I believe, of this strange Christian pilgrimage that we are all on together and individually. One of those songs is entitled, We Are Not As Strong As We Think We Are. And I won't read the lyrics to it because really the title says it all. That is what this passage of scripture really illustrates. We are not as strong as we think we are. Peter is obviously not as strong as he thinks he is, and that might be true of you today too. He has no idea how much he needs Jesus during this moment of trial. And frankly, most of the time, neither do I. If I did, I'd spend a lot more time in prayer than I typically do. If churches knew how desperately Satan would like to get in and wreak havoc of their congregational life, they would prioritize prayer meetings more than they do. If I knew how desperately close I have come to absolutely destroying my ministry and my family and my life, I would be far more diligent in studying scripture than I am. So yes, along with Peter, I'd say there are lots of times in which we are not as strong as we think we are. Well, why do I say Peter overestimates his ability? Well, it's fairly obvious over the last few chapters we see uh, what Peter does to distance himself from Christ. For one thing, he is supremely self-confident when he boasts to the Lord just a few chapters back. Lord, even, even if all of these other disciples of yours leave you, I never will. I, I'll go to prison with you. I'll go anywhere I need to go. I, I will never let you down, Lord. And how easy it is to be overconfident in those quiet moments before the pressure heats up, before the peer pressure starts to get under our skin, before our will starts to ebb away. A thousand voices in the world, too, are constantly telling us things like, you've got this, and you deserve this, and you are worth this, and you can do this, and, and you don't need anyone else. And it's counterintuitive to admit, no, actually, Lord, I do need thee every hour. There's not a second that goes by that I don't need your sustaining grace and your help. I think for men especially, there is so much pressure upon us to never admit we need anything. We're supposed to have this, and we're not supposed to ask for help, and we're supposed to be self-sufficient. And Peter is a man's man. He is bold, and he's assertive. He's aggressive at times. He's rugged. He is ready for action. But boy, does Peter get knocked down in this passage, and it may be the best thing that ever happened to him. Another way that Peter shows overconfidence in these few chapters is his prayerlessness. Peter does not pray as he ought. 
You'll remember they were in Gethsemane earlier that night. And while Jesus sweated drops of blood, agonizing in prayer, Peter and company are doing what? They're taking a nap. They're snoozing off to the side. And Jesus warns them, you had better be watching and praying because unless you do, you will fall into temptation. It's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. I know your spirit is willing, but your flesh is also weak. Watch and pray, or you'll fall into temptation. He says, guys, can't you stay awake with me for one hour? It's not a lot to ask. But if they could see how close they are in this moment to being Satan's playthings, to being toys in the hands of the prince of darkness, they'd never sleep again. And so they're completely oblivious to how dangerous their situation is. So Peter finds it more important to catch a catnap instead of asking God for help in this hour. Why? Why is that? Well, very simply, he doesn't think he needs to. The great biblical principle is so applicable here. Let him who thinks he stands take heed. Look around. Pay attention. Why? Lest he fall. Why don't we pray more than we do? Isn't the answer obvious? We don't see our need for it. We think we're standing. We see no need to take heed because we don't know that we are tottering on the brink of a precipice over an abyss of sin and misery. And that's the long and short of our predicament sometimes. We are doing just fine without divine help. And so we don't ask for it. We have what we need. So two points this morning. Number one, the fall of a disciple. And number two, the rise of an apostle. So first of all, the fall of a disciple. When Jesus' captors show up there in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter's not ready. Why isn't he ready? Because he hasn't prayed. Very simple. In his impulsive and volatile way there, he goes postal and he hacks some guy's ear off with a sword. And then just as erratically, he panics. And he, along with his 12 friends, 11 friends, flee into the night. They just take off running. They go in hysteria. The shepherd is struck and the sheep scatter in the night. But then you sense this battle that's going on inside Peter, don't you? You see it in his body language. He doesn't know which way to go. He follows Jesus, which you've got to give him credit for, because that's what disciples do, isn't it? A disciple, by definition, is one who follows the Lord. And not just when things are going well, but when the Lord heads into trouble. So Peter does follow him. He follows him tentatively, but he's still following. He's one of only two disciples that we're told follow Jesus into the high priest's home. We don't know if this is Annas' home or Caiaphas' home. It might be a home that they share. But in any event, we're only told that two disciples go into this courtyard. John, who actually helps get Peter in the door, and Peter himself. So the downside of his following Jesus is obvious. He follows Jesus, not closely, but at a distance. So you see two competing impulses at work in the Apostle Peter. This sort of internal tug of war. Which way is he going to go? You see, loyalty on the one hand, because he is following Jesus, 
But then you see self-preservation on the other hand because he doesn't want to get too close at the risk of his own neck, right? It is a dangerous business, though, to follow Jesus at a distance. To want to stay tangentially connected with Jesus, to kind of stay on the periphery because, because of the benefits that Jesus gives us, right? But not so close that it threatens your autonomy or threatens your comfort or threatens your security. And what does Jesus say? If anyone would come after me, let him what? Deny himself. And pick up his cross daily and follow me. Deny your safety. Deny your security. Deny your autonomy. Now the upside of that is we get far more security and comfort in the presence of Jesus than we could ever generate for ourselves. But we do have to sacrifice those things, don't we? Another way to look at this is that life is maintained by breathing. Inhalation and exhalation. You breathe in oxygen, you breathe out carbon dioxide. Now we are in union with Jesus Christ. That's part of what, that's, that is what it means to be a Christian. But our spiritual connection with him has to be nurtured in order to thrive. You got to breathe in God's word. You've got to breathe in what the Holy Spirit breathed out. But you also must do what? You've got to breathe out your prayers to him. Breathing is a two-way street. And communication is a two-way street. How do you nurture any relationship between any two people? By talking and by listening. Stop talking or listening to your spouse, and guess what happens? The relationship grows cold, doesn't it? Well, it's the same way with Jesus. It's the same way with the Lord. And in this friendship with Jesus, Peter has done a lot of talking, a lot of blustery, braggadocious, brash talking. Listening, not so much. He's heard what Jesus has said, but he's pretty sure he knows better his own heart than what Jesus knows of his heart. So Peter has been a distant follower for a while. This is just a continuation of, G of Peter's sort of arm-length relationship with Jesus. He counts on Jesus needing him. He feeds his own ego with the fact that Jesus really needs me. I'm part of Jesus' team. But he forgets how desperately he, Peter, needs Jesus. So in the cool of this evening, he goes into the courtyard after John lets him in. He sits down by this fire pit to keep warm, along with some other people. And this servant girl sees the light from the fire sort of flickering on Peter's face, sort of dancing on the side of his face, and it prompts her memory. She's seen this guy before. She recognizes him, so she sort of gazes at him a while, looks very closely at Peter, and finally she says, this man was also with them. Well, Peter kind of tenses up. He's, he's spooked a little bit. He came here for reconnaissance. He didn't come here to be recognized. And so he responds, woman, I don't know him. It's so ironic that just hours ago, Peter had said so self-confidently, Lord, I will go to prison with you. And now he denies ever being with him at all. So he's never been with him. Don't know him. You've got me confused with someone else. So the moment passes, and Peter must have thought, well, that was close. And so a little bit later, someone else 
This time, a man whose word would have carried in that culture a good bit more weight said, you know what, you also were one of them. Now at this point, Peter starts to make a bad habit of equivocating. His slip becomes a slide. I remember listening to a, a famous preacher when I was growing up who had this sermon in which he would come back with this refrain again and again and again. When you slip, Christian, make sure you don't slide. Well, Peter has slipped at this point. He could have caught himself. He could have turned back to the Lord, but instead he takes a slide. See, the first time we sin, it bothers us, doesn't it? gets under our skin because our consciences are sensitive at that point. And so they're easily pricked. We don't want to do it, but we caved in in a moment of weakness and we feel bad about it afterwards, feel terrible. But the second time is much easier, isn't it? Because the conscience is already beginning to get seared. And therefore, we are in much greater danger the second time. If sin starts to bother us less and less, we're on a very slippery slope. And apart from the, the mercy and grace of God, we can slide all the way to hell if we're not careful. But Peter insists more decisively, man, I am not. You'll remember that one of Jesus' famous sayings are various forms of the phrase, I am. I am the great shepherd. I am the door. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, here Peter says in absolute stark contrast to that, I am not. Well, about an hour later, another guy pipes up. Perhaps these people have been talking amongst themselves and kind of whispering, don't you recognize this man? And this man is more self-assured than the lot of them. There is zero doubt in his mind. He has seen Peter before with Jesus. He is absolutely convinced this man certainly, he says, was with him. And the, the reason he gives for that is a little bit comical. Because he's a Galilean. And Jesus and the other disciples are Galileans too. And so therefore, he must be guilty. So Peter is profiled a little bit by being a Galilean country boy. He gets looped in with the other ones. Now Peter is really starting to get anxious because, you know, a servant girl at the outset is easily dismissed. What does she know, right? But now two men have identified him. And in that culture, in the testimony of two or three witnesses, every truth is established. And so Peter starts to realize, I could be next. I could be brought up on charges. I could be arrested. I could be taken to task. So he starts to panic. And he denies even more vociferously, man, I don't know what you're talking about. And the other gospel accounts tell us he made a solemn oath. And he even started to curse. Well, at this point, he's interrupted in that final denial. And he's so out of his mind with panic that it doesn't even register until he turns and he looks at Jesus. And the perfect timing of this providentially happens so that he is right in Peter's view at the time the cock crows. So the Lord turns and he looks right at Peter and they make that eye contact and it clicks. Peter remembers the words of the Lord. How we need to remember the words of the Lord before we fall into temptation until after the damage is done. What does the psalm say? 
Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against thee. But Peter remembers Jesus telling him those words that he refused to accept about himself, and now they are coming home to his heart full force. So Jesus, this prophet to end all prophets, whatever Jesus says is going to happen. And he utters this very precise prediction of what Peter has, will do. And Peter doesn't listen to it because he thinks he knows himself better than Jesus knows him. And he denies his Lord three times before the rooster crows, exactly as Jesus predicted that he would. And Peter knows it, and it absolutely devastates him. It crushes him. He just melts into tears. So the falling of a disciple. Secondly and finally, the rising of an apostle. The rising of an apostle. Peter goes out, we're told, and weeps bitterly. Now that might sound like a strange thing to say first under the heading of the rising of an apostle, but we know how it works in God's word, doesn't it? Weeping endures for the night, but joy comes in the morning. Weeping often precedes greater joy. Falling comes before rising. So the eye contact that Peter has with the Lord devastates him because he sees in the Savior's eyes, not a smug, I told you so look, and not a self-pitying, how could you have done this to me, Peter, look, and not a vindictive, I'm going to get you, Peter, look, but what kind of look? Well, if we know anything about the Savior at this point in Luke's gospel, about the kind of Savior he is, we know it had to be a look of love, didn't it? A look of understanding, a look of compassion, a look that just welled with thanksgiving and mercy. Greater love has no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. That's the kind of love that Jesus is about to exemplify before his disciples. So when Peter catches the Lord's eye in this moment, there's a reminder of the warning that Jesus gave him. Satan has asked to sift you as we, Peter. And Peter knows that Jesus was absolutely right about that prediction, about that warning. And he knows, therefore, that he's also right about the promise he's about to give him. But I have prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. And Peter's faith doesn't fail. If for no other reason that Jesus prayed that Peter's faith would not fail. What keeps us from utter ruin sometimes is not the perseverance of the saints, but really the preservation of the Lord. This is the equivalent of Peter sinking in the, the waves in the Sea of Galilee and Jesus reaching out with his hand and pulling him out of the waves. Faith is not introspection. It is us looking away from ourselves to Jesus. Uh, however feeble, however frail that look may be, it is looking away from ourselves and saying, Lord, I need you. I look to you. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face, and all the things of this world will go dim in the light of his glory and grace. So, 
Peter's faith looks up to Jesus and away from himself. So as this broken, disillusioned, empty shell of a man gazes away from himself, he still has this mustard seed of faith that is intact, and he places his gaze on Jesus. And he sees the forgiving grace of the man that he just denied, and it crushes him. And this strong man's man, this rugged fisherman, melts into tears. But you see, those tears are good. Those tears are a precursor to repentance. There's a kind of worldly sorrow that the Apostle Paul tells us about that crushes our spirits and leaves us in despair. Uh, Judas is a good example of someone who succumbed to worldly sorrow and committed suicide. But then Paul tells us there's another kind of sorrow that's actually good for us. It's called godly sorrow. He says it leads to repentance and it leaves no regret in its wake. And Paul talks about all the great effects that that godly sorrow has produced in the Corinthians. Someone once told me, shouldn't I feel better, Pastor, after coming out of a worship service than I did when I first went in? And I thought about that, and I said, if you're broken by your sin, and if you're looking to escape that sin, the answer is yes. But if you're full of yourself and brimming with self-confidence and for evangelical smugness, then the effect of the gospel should be to bring you low and to make you feel worse before you feel better, to pop your balloon, to empty yourself of yourself so that you might be filled with Christ. And that doesn't really feel good in the moment, but it is absolutely necessary. So Peter experiences this not worldly sorrow that leads to despair, but godly sorrow that leads him to repentance. Peter had never felt worse in his life than he did at that moment. This is absolute rock bottom for Peter. And he and Judas had that in common. This is the worst moment of their lives. So why does Judas fall into the abyss while Peter rises from this moment? Well, because Judas had worldly sorrow that led to crushing despair. He had no hope in his sorrow. Peter had godly sorrow, and that was his first step to repentance and restoration. And the only reason he had it is because Jesus prayed that he might have it. And Jesus' prayers were heeded and answered. Just a couple of days later, you know the restoration story. Once again, Peter and Jesus are gazing at each other across a fire, this time on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. After the resurrection, they're enjoying uh, breakfast that Jesus has prepared for his disciples on the shore. And Jesus, after the resurrection, takes that time to make eye contact with Peter again, across that fire, and he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Peter says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Three times, Peter denied knowing Jesus. And Jesus made sure that three times 
he restored his beloved apostle. And the fact that Peter did made him in God's providence a very powerful apostle. In just a matter of weeks, Peter preaches this powerful sermon at Pentecost. He's been deeply, deeply humbled, emptied of himself, filled with the Holy Spirit. He preaches this sermon in which 3,000 souls come to know the Lord Jesus. So he became sympathetic to the needs and weaknesses of other people in ways that he was not before, in ways that he would not have been had he not fallen and been restored by the Lord Jesus. But after he did, he wrote these great words in his first epistle. He says, So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. You see, Peter's fall took a very, very hard man and made him also compassionate and patient with others while still retaining his strength of character. Made him a very, very powerful tool in the Lord's hands. He can take your falls and my falls too to do the very same thing, to make of us what he could not, what we could not be under any other circumstances. I had a teenage young man say to me not long ago how thankful he was for the trials that the Lord had put into his life. And by that, he meant temptations that he could not handle on his own because he said through that, I have been led to, to know my Lord more deeply than I ever would otherwise. So the Lord can help us in our moment of temptation, and when we fall, he is our great advocate who is more than willing and able to restore us and to make us even more effective for having fallen and been restored. So praise be to God for that. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the remarkable life of the Apostle Peter, the way that you allowed him to fall into temptation so that you might restore him, so that you might recommission him, so that you might make him stronger, so that you might make him more useful in your hands. Thank you that you can do the same with us. Uh, we are men and women 